0: Actually, we're going to look at a few verses in chapter 10, but it's right there on the same page, so hopefully. And if you have a, um, a Bible around you in your chairs, it's page 211, and the Bible's under your chairs if you want to use one of those that are provided for you. You know, I was thinking this past week, what are some of the worst decisions in history that have caused the loss of thousands of lives? I'm thinking like military history with all these movies that are coming out about military heroes. There's a lot of similarity between Napoleon and Hitler. Napoleon and Hitler. I don't know if you know that. Both of these generals attempted to invade Russia to expand their empires, and both failed miserably. In 1812, Napoleon sent his French army to try to invade Russia. And this has been studied as probably one of the most devastating military endeavors ever to fail. In less than six months, nearly one million soldiers and civilians died. And so here's what the Russians did. It was called scorched earth. They would burn down villages so that the French could not have access to food and to grain. And so basically the French army Starved to death, froze to death, and eventually Napoleon never conquered Russia. Hitler comes on the scene many years later. Hitler studied Napoleon, and Hitler thought, well, if Napoleon couldn't do it, I can do it. So Hitler tries to invade Russia. I talked about this a few weeks ago, Operation Barbarossa. He sent his troops into Russia, and again, Five months resulted in five million deaths. Hitler never conquered Russia. So here's the lesson for this morning. Don't try to invade Russia. <laughs> it's not going to work. Now, I'm not, a, I'm not a military history buff, but I can say that both Hitler and Napoleon made a bad decision. A really bad decision. And you wonder how much thought went into the process of this invasion. Were they they blinded by their pride? Did they think they could just stroll in there and and invade Russia? Was it a quick decision? Okay, Hitler, Napoleon, history. Let's make this very personal to you this morning. What's the worst decision you ever made in your life? Now, don't raise your hand and tell me. Have you made a very quick decision decision? And then things didn't go the way you wanted them to go. And maybe it actually hurt others. It was a quick decision. Okay, the worst decision you've ever made. Now let me ask you another question. Have you ever opened your mouth and that got you into trouble? Had you said things you've regretted or had to take back that caused conflict or hurt in relationships? You know, after the fallout, you bang your head against the wall. And I don't know if you've ever done this before. Like, why did I have to say that? There goes my big mouth again, getting me in trouble. Why do I move so quickly? Why do I talk so quickly? Why did I make that decision? Now, why do I bring up dumb decisions, opening our mouths and getting ourselves in trouble this morning? Well, because we launch into Judges chapter 11... And we're introduced to this judge named Jephthah, and what you'll find out about Jephthah as he opens his big mouth and makes a really dumb decision with terrible consequences. If you remember from last week, it was kind of an interlude between Abimelech, the supposed king, and then what's happening in Judges 11, where they the Israelites faked repentance. And they kept doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And God comes to their rescue and God saves them, not because they deserve to be saved, but simply because God is a God of mercy. And God chose to redeem them and save them out of their misery because they were oppressed for 18 years. And then you get to the end of chapter 10. I told you we'd go into chapter 11, but let's just look at the last two verses of chapter 10 because it sets up chapter 11. So, chapter 10, verse 17. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. It's a new enemy, the Ammonites. The question the Israelites have, who's going to be the leader? Who's going to go fight for us? Who's going to be the man? And we find out the man is Jephthah as we go into chapter 11. So chapter 11 divides nicely into three scenes. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the second scene. I'm just going to briefly summarize it. But really what we want to focus on is scene three. But let's just dive right into Judges chapter 11. Let's look at scene one, an unlikely hero. Who's the man that's going to deliver Israel? Well, his name is Jephthah, the unlikely hero. So let's look at verses 1 through 11. Now Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah. And Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when his wife's sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, You shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tob, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out with him. After a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to bring Jephthah from the land of Tob. And they said to Jephthah, Come, be our leader, that we may fight against the Ammonites. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you're in distress? And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, That is why we have turned to you now, that you may go with us and fight against the Ammonites and be our head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be witness between us if we do not do as you say, So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. So Jephthah is a mighty (coughs) warrior, but he's the illegitimate son of a prostitute. Now, the name Jephthah means he has opened. He has opened. Now, let's think about his mom. Why would she name him he has opened? Is she believing in the Lord, the God of Israel? Did God open her womb to provide this son? Did a pagan deity like Baal open her womb to provide this son? We really don't know. All we know is that Jephthah is disowned by his family. All his brothers come against him. He basically gets kicked out of his family, and he goes and lives in this faraway place called Tob, and he gathers some worthless fellows around him. So basically, he becomes kind of a gang leader with a bunch of thugs, the wife of a prostitute. And we don't know the name of his mother, this nameless prostitute. And let's ask the question, why did his dad go into prostitutes? Did his father have an unhealthy habit of visiting prostitutes? If it was an Israelite woman, this was a flagrant sin, because Leviticus 19.29 says do not profane, profane your daughter by making her a prostitute lest the land fall into prostitution and the land become full of depravity. If she was an Israelite, this is really bad. All right, let's say that she's a pagan, a Canaanite. It's even just as bad because Exodus 24 and Deuteronomy 7 talk about that. And what if she was a temple prostitute? What if she was hanging out at the temple where the false worship and the false gods were and this father Gilead goes into this prostitute for pagan worship? So, so this is a really, really bad time in Israel's history. It's kind of a sordid situation. Who thought the Bible talked like this? Sons of prostitutes? Jephthah, somewhat of a gang leader who had to flee his hometown. He's got a bunch of worthless fellows around him. I didn't know the Bible talked about stuff like this. And he is the one that's going to deliver Israel. He's the most unlikely candidate. In the world's eyes, he's a loser. The, lo- the lowest of low. But that's what God does. 1 Corinthians 1.27 God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So he's an unlikely hero. But the Israelites are in trouble. The Ammonites are pressing in. So they go to Jephthah and say, hey, come be our leader, come be our leader. And Jephthah's like, okay, you want me now? You kicked me out before, but now when things are bad, you want me to be your leader. Now the word leader there in verse 6 means like a military leader, a chief. They don't want him to be a king. Remember how badly that went for Abimelech. And they don't call him a judge. They don't want him to be a judge. They want him to be basically like a chief, a military leader. And in verse 9, he does attribute his success to the hands of the Lord. And then in verse 11, the people do make him their leader. But I want you to notice how the verse ends in verse 11. Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mizpah. That's key. You may say, what's the big deal? Jephthah spoke all these words. That's the problem. Jephthah is talking all through this chapter. Jephthah's a blabbermouth. He's a smooth talker. He is a talker of talk. He's always talking. And you'll find out that his words get him in trouble, major trouble. So that's scene number one, the unlikely hero, the son of a prostitute kicked out of his family, hangs around with a bunch of worthless fellows. They call him back, and he is going to deliver Israel. And so scene number two, I'm just going to summarize scene two. It's verses 12 through 28. He's a master of words. Basically, this entire section is a negotiation between Jephthah and the king of the Ammonites. So what Jephthah does before they go fight, he goes in for some, some negotiations, for some delegations. And Jephthah goes before the king and the Ammonites and basically gives three arguments. Argument number one is historical. So in verses 15 through 20, Jephthah gives a history lesson of Israel. He goes back to Numbers chapter twenty and twenty-one and basically says, During the times of Moses, we came in here, you weren't around, it was a different enemy. God gave us the victory and we kind of asked for permission to come through this area and we got attacked. And it really wasn't you Ammonites that were our enemy back then. And so number one, let me give you a history lesson. And then the second thing he gives is a theological lesson in verses twenty three and twenty four and basically says, God gave us this land. God it doesn't belong to you. God gave us this land. And then in verses 25 through 27 he gives a legal advice. He gives a legal reason. He says, "Listen, we've lived here for 300 years and you haven't cared about us. Why are you caring about us now? Why after 300 years is this is this a big deal? Legally, we've been here for 300 years and you haven't caused a stink." And so, he tries to negotiate. He smooth talks, and then you find out at the end there in verse 28 But the king of the Ammonites did not listen to the words of Jephthah that he sent him. Okay, so that's scene number two. I told you to be really brief. We don't want to get all tied up in the negotiations between a king, but what we really want to focus on is scene three, which is a misery of words. Jephthah's words get him in trouble. His words are his downfall. All right, let's look at verse 29. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah to Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, Then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aror to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities and as far as Abel-Karamim, with a great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you've brought me very low. You've become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow." And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone for two months, that I may go up and down on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So he said, Go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and she wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She'd never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, four days in the year. Jephthah makes a vow to the Lord. And I want you to notice the wording in verse 31. Whatever, whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Does he expect a human being to walk through the door? Did he expect his dog to come in and meet him? Did he expect a lamb to come strolling in the door? Did he ever expect when he made this vow that it would be his one and only daughter? Two things we do know. Number one, burnt offerings were only reserved for animal sacrifices. So for him to say something about making a burnt offering, you may think that maybe he was thinking about an animal. Number two, Human sacrifices by burnt offerings were an abomination to the Lord. Leviticus 18.21 says, You shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Don't give your children to, 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 to burnt offerings. So it's an it. Whatever comes through the door, it. Some people call this a rash vow. Jephthah wasn't thinking it through. Here's the problem. The narrator never gives us the inner thoughts and intentions of Jephthah. It could be that he was thoroughly paganized and he was acting just like the nations around him. But here's where it gets very troubling. Jephthah's not taking the Lord's name in vain. He's not even invoking a pagan deity. He's not making a vow to Baal. He's not making a vow to a false god. He's being very religious. As a matter of fact, the word Lord, L-O-R-D in all caps, shows up six times in these verses. So he's not, a, he's not afraid to invoke the name of the Lord. He's not a, afraid to sound religious. He's not talking about a pagan deity. He's an Israelite who appears to be worshiping the Lord. And his talking is going to get him in trouble. Now, I want you to notice how rapid the battle is. I mean, there's no graphic details about the battle. Verse 32. Verse 32 and 33, Ammonites were subdued. Because that's not the issue. The issue is not how quick the battle was. The issue is on what happens after the battle. Whatever walks through the door, it I will offer up as a burnt offering. And so his daughter she is also nameless, but extra biblical history tells us that maybe her name was Sheila. That's kind of the, the Jewish tradition. We really don't know. But I want you to know what verse 34 says. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and I want you to notice that, the, and behold, behold his daughter. Behold in Hebrew means this. Wouldn't you just know it? would you look at that or in the Sean Cole version are you kidding me she is the one who walks in the door and she walks in like any young girl would that adores her father who returns from battle she's dancing and she's celebrating she's happy she she goes and greets her dad who's victorious she probably jumps up and gives him a big hug daddy you're home And what does Jephthah do? We find out a great deal about this man and how he opens his mouth. There's no tenderness with his daughter. If you read the text, there's a brutality in his tone. It's very chilling. Look at what he says in verse 35. As soon as he saw his daughter, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low. You have become the cause of great trouble to me. You're the problem. I had to open my big mouth. You're the problem. No hug, no tenderness. He blames her. I'm the victim, not you. You're my problem, daughter. You're the problem. And then verse 39 is chilling. Because what does verse 39 tell us? Five, short, Hebrew words. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, and here's what it says, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. Now, he doesn't burn her alive. Even animals weren't burned alive. Their throats were slit. And we don't even know if Jephthah had the nerve to do it himself or if he got a servant one of his worthless thugs, to do his dirty work. All we know is the narrator told us she died. And some scholars have tried to blunt the reality here by saying that all Jephthah did was make her live her entire life as a virgin. That she would be unmarried, she'd be childless, but that's not what the text tells us. The text tells us that he fulfilled the vow he made to the Lord and had her killed. Because remember what he said, Whatever walks through that door, I'm offering it as a burnt sacrifice to the Lord. Did he ever think it would be his own daughter? Now, what should have Jephthah done once his daughter walked through those doors? Well, he should have backed up and done what Psalm 141, verse 3 says. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I should have been Jeff this prayer all along. God, I've got, I've got a running mouth. Protect my mouth here. He should have done this. Any good, loving father would have done this. He should have brought a curse upon himself, broken the vow and spared his daughter because human life is more important than a vow. That's what he should have done. God, I'm breaking the vow because human life is more important than the vow I made to you. And I'm bringing a curse upon myself because I know it's bad to break a vow. And also there was an out in Israelite law. In Leviticus 27, there is a Mosaic law that says you can pay 30 shekels to the priest to save the daughter's life. He could have gone and found a priest and said, hey, I'll pay the 30 shekels. So here's the question that baffles us. Why did Jephthah follow through on the vow? Why did he have his daughter killed? Well, the text doesn't tell us. I mean, his mouth gets him in trouble, and he says, you're, the, you're my problem. But he, he executes the justice upon her that he said was going to happen if she walked through the door, knowing that it was her And so I I thought deeply about this. What what are some reasons why Jephthah does this? Now, the text does not tell us. But I want to just give a couple of observations that I think through biblical wisdom and the rest of the scriptures, we can probably understand. And here's the first observation as to why Jephthah possibly did this. Could it be that he was so desensitized to the violence around him from the pagan culture that it did bother him, but it didn't bother him enough to break the vow. In other words, he had become desensitized to violence. Listen to what the Bible says about what can happen. This is especially among unbelievers, Ephesians 4:17 through 19. Now this I say in testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They become calloused. What happens when you develop a callous on your hand it's no longer sensitive. It's no longer the conviction, the guilt, the conscience. You've built up this resistance to any type of feeling of guilt. First Timothy 4, 1-2, through two, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Now, some translations say your conscience is seared as if, as if with a hot iron or branded. So your conscience can be seared. Your conscience can be calloused or dulled. Titus 1.15 says this, To the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure. Both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So the Bible is very clear. A person can have a dulled, defiled, calloused hardened conscience where you no longer are sensitive to sin or conviction. And these passages are primarily about non-believers who do not have the Holy Spirit in their lives, but let me just ask the question, can Christians who have the Holy Spirit at times become callous to sin? Can we be desensitized? You know, it's no different today Have you become so desensitized to sex and violence and profanity on movies and TV shows and video games and YouTube clips that it's like white noise. You're not even bothered by it. You've, You've seen so much. You've taken in so much. Nothing really bothers you anymore. I was thinking about my great aunt Ruth. My great aunt Ruth, she was born in 1902, and she died in 1990 when I was a senior in high school. She was a piano player for silent movies back in the day, like in the 20s, piano player for silent movies. And I wondered, wow, movies were kind of crazy in 1990 when I graduated from high school when she died, but I wonder what my great Aunt Ruth would do if she walked into a PG-13 movie today, not even a rated R movie. Would she be utterly shocked to see how much has changed over the years? You see, what was scandalous back in the 20s, or maybe even back in the 1960s, is what seven-year-olds have access onto their smartphones and tablets today. What was taboo 40 years ago is mainstream today, and nobody blushes. You know, this chapter is all about voices. Voices. Jephthah's voice. He's always talking. He lives in a culture of conflicting voices. He's surrounded by gods and goddesses and prostitution and compromise. I mean, he's the son of a prostitute. And let me ask a question. Do we see anybody emerge in this chapter as a prophet that would come say, listen to the word of the Lord? One thing you will notice that is absent in the book of Judges, where are the priests and the prophets? They're nowhere to be found. Nobody standing up and saying, hey, Jephthah, thus saith the Lord. No, they're listening to all the voices of the culture, all the voices of the gods and goddesses. Everybody's talking. And in the same way, we live in a culture of worthless noises and talking heads. Godless chatter, vulgar language, and mindless banter. Think about how many voices and input you get on a daily basis. Facebook, YouTube, YouTube. Instagram, TikTok, video games, Netflix, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Disney Plus, Apple TV, podcasts, radio stations, cable news, and I think I can probably think of some more, but that's a pretty good list right there. You're surrounded by voices all the time, and not all of them are bad. Some are just stupid and unproductive, but if we're not careful like Jephthah, we can be desensitized to the voices and noise around us that we begin to look just like the godless culture and nothing bothers us anymore. It could be that Jephthah, even though he was spirit-empowered, he was thoroughly paganized, and that's just the way he thought. That's just who he was because he was a product of his culture. And Pastor Dustin led us earlier in our time of confession to think about what Paul says in Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally brothers whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is just whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is commendable if there's any excellence if there's anything worthy of praise think about these things. Original language continually be thinking about these things. Be transformed by thinking about the things that are of God. So Why did Jephthah do this? Well, it could be he was just desensitized from the culture. He's so much a product of his culture, he, he wasn't aware of really what he was doing. But here's another observation. Why did he make the vow in the first place? What was he trying to do? Go back and look. Earlier, in verse 30, he says, Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, there's an if-then there, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's all offered up as a burnt offering. What's he doing? He's trying to buy off God for victory. Hey God, God, listen, I'm going to be real religious here. If you give me the victory, I'll reward you with a, a sacrifice. I'll kind of pay you off, God, so I can go into this victory and have success. If, if God, if you reward me with victory, I'll quote-unquote reward you with a sacrifice. In other words, I'll, I'll do a good deed, God, because you did a good deed for me. You see, Jephthah does not understand grace. If he was a spirit-empowered leader... And God had raised him up. God will give him the victory. He doesn't need to bribe God or try to impress God. Romans 4, 4-5 says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteous. He did not believe in salvation by grace alone through faith alone. He thought he could do something to earn God's favor. So he was, and this is the sad thing about it, Jephthah was a spirit-empowered leader, but at the same time, he was acting like a pagan who did not trust in the sovereign grace of God. So can that happen to you today as a true believer and dwelt by the Spirit? Yes. You can fail to understand God's grace. You can try to work for your salvation. You can try to get into God's good graces by doing good deeds, Winning God's praise. You see, Jephthah is an example of a man who was consumed by paganism. He was desensitized to sin and he did not understand God's grace. And so he did what he did because of that. But here's the telling fact about the entire chapter 11 this is where it gets very scary. God is silent. This may bother you that there's no commentary on whether what Jephthah did was sinful. It doesn't say what Jephthah did was right or what Jephthah did was wrong. There's no, there's no statement coming in saying, and Jephthah did evil in the sight of the Lord. It just hangs out there for us to see that he did evil. And who's doing all the talking? Jephthah. Jephthah's doing all the talking in this chapter. And here's the thing about Jephthah. He knows a lot about God. He can talk a great game. I can use the Christian ease. I can talk the Christian talk. I can use the Lord's name. I can use worship language. I can be very talkative in my Christianity. A lot of us can talk the Christian talk. But then by our actions we show that we are so much like Culture. Now, does God approve of what He did? What He did? Absolutely not. Here's the thing: the silence from God shows that Israel has spiraled into gross depravity. Remember, I told you at the beginning of the Book of Judges that we would be dealing with nasties. <laughs> this is a nasty. A nasty are those parts of Judges where like it makes us scratch our heads, makes us wonder, like why is this in the Bible? This doesn't sit well. This is. Very gross, it's very unsettling, it's a nasty. So the chapter ends with a nasty. She walks through the door, he kills her, and then she has two months to basically go weep for her virginity, comes back, and then he has her killed. So it ends on a very sour note. Okay, I don't want to leave you on a sour note this morning. I don't want to let you leave on a nasty this morning, okay? So so where does the good news of the gospel come into this passage of Scripture? Well, I want us to think about Jephthah for a moment. Let's just stop our talking and hear God speak loudly and clearly what he's done for us in the gospel. The gospel is about hearing what God has done. Jephthah sacrificed his one and only daughter and it was tragic. It was unnecessary. It didn't accomplish anything. God sacrificed his one and only son and it accomplished everything. The cross. Romans 8.32 He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We sang it earlier with that new song. God is not silent because on the cross, what did Jesus shout? It is what finished. God is not silent because he put an exclamation point on the cross by rising Jesus from the dead. God speaks to us today loudly with the cross and with the resurrection. And when we hear God's voice of victory, when we hear God's voice of the cross, of the resurrection, it is not a time for lamenting or weeping or mourning the way these ladies did. It's a time of joy and of hope because God is sovereign. God is not silent. He shouts His love to us. In the cross. God may be silent in Judges 11 and it's tragic, but on the cross and in the resurrection, God is very loud and God is very clear. So what's our response to the loud and clear message of God on the cross? Psalm 46.10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations I will be exalted in the earth. Be still. Be still. Ecclesiastes 5, 2-3. Be not rash with your mouth. Let not your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. Be still, let your words be few. Habakkuk 2.20, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Be still, let your words be few. Keep silent before him. Romans 3.19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Be still. Let your words be few. Keep silent before Him and let your mouth be stopped. I like what Martin Lloyd Jones says about this verse. He says, How do you know whether someone is a Christian? The answer is that his mouth is shut. We like to talk. We like to hear ourselves talk. And the best thing for us to do today is to shut our mouths and listen to the sound of God to us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Let us remain silent with our hands over our mouths knowing that all we can really offer God is our guilt and our sin. We can't argue with God. We can't put our resume before God. We can't justify our sins. We can't offer God anything. And we always want to talk our way out of things or talk our way through things. Let's just shut our mouths this morning and receive grace upon grace. Let's shut our mouths and open our hands and receive the gift of eternal life. And let's just shut our mouths and know that Jesus is Lord. And he is worthy of all praise and worship. And sometimes the best thing we can do is to be silent before him. He is God. He's in the heavens. We are his people. May we get on our knees and be silent before this great God. And hear him speak over us the victory of Jesus. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father, we want to be still before you and know that you are God. We want our words to be few before you because you are God. And we want to keep silent before you because you are in your holy temple as God. And we want to shut our mouths this morning and have our ears open to hear truth and our hands open to receive grace. Lord, we can offer you nothing. We can bring nothing to the table. All we bring to you is our sin, our guilt, our shame. And praise you, Jesus, that you died for our sins. You died for our guilt and shame. You cried out, it is finished. Paid it in full. Rose again from the the dead so that we could have hope eternal life. So if there's anybody in this room this morning that's never trusted you for salvation, they've, they've done a lot of talking, but they've done, never close their mouth and listen, <laughs> may today be the day where their mouth is stopped, their ears are open, their hands are open to receive salvation in Christ alone. Lord, let us leave this place a little sober. This is a chapter that doesn't hit well. It's disturbing. And I think it's meant to be disturbing. So as we go home and we ponder these truths, may we always remember that, God, you get the last word. And the last word is victory. The last word is hope. Hope. The last word is sovereignty because, Jesus, you died and rose again. It is finished. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. Help us to obey you this week. Help us to think about what we put in our ears, what we put before our eyes. Help us to think about the things that are of you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I will be